Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dowzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. For 30 years, George Miller thought he had done everything he could to Mad Max. But boy, are we glad that he didn't throw in the towel. In 2015, Mad Max Fury Road shattered expectations for action filmmaking. Practically every frame left me asking, how in the heck did they do that? And how did no one die while filming this? Here to discuss Furiosa and her badass journey on the Fury Road is the executive director of Feminist for Liberty, Kat Murdy. Hey, thanks for having me. And the Cato Institute's own senior video editor, Lester Romero. Hello, thank you for having me. Lester, Kat, Natalie, when Fury Road was released, everyone was kind of up in arms asking and talking about, like, is this movie feminist? Is it the feminist action movie that we've been waiting for? And we've run into similar issues on this show when we've sort of pondered, is this movie libertarian? And we've kind of realized that while a lot of them have themes that lend themselves to either libertarianism or feminism or anything like that, movies that come out entirely ideologically pure aren't really as interesting. Uh, they just become kind of propaganda at that moment, um, which isn't really as fun to consume or interesting. So I guess a better question to start this conversation about Mad Max Fury Road would be, where does the movie succeed in its use of feminist themes and where does it fall short? Yeah. Uh, so I think the, the first part of this, um, you know, all movies, I think if you're trying to think of them as feminist or not, it's worthwhile to look at the Bechdel Miller test. Um, so that basically says that in order for a movie to be a feminist movie, and this isn't all comprising, this is sort of just like that first step. It needs to have at least two female characters, which we saw. It, uh, they have to all have names, which, again, we saw, although they don't really use the names that much, but they do have names. And they have to talk to each other about something that was not a man. And so surprisingly, despite the lack of dialogue in this film, it does pass the Bechdel-Miller test. And then, of course, uh, so, so, you know, so it's, it's got that ground level in there. Then, you know, I went into this movie, I'd heard all of the stuff about how it's a super feminist movie. We had all the MRAs that were uh, boycotting it because it was too feminist or feminist propaganda or whatever. So I go into this. And then the first time that you see this introduction of the wives, you see this or who are really the wives, the breeders, whatever you want to call them. It's this like really film tropey scene where they're essentially lingerie models. In fact, a couple of them actually are lingerie models. And they're wearing this flimsy white muslin that doesn't make any sense to be wearing in the desert. And they're being watered down with a hose, which is not feminist imagery, right? Like I basically rolled my eyes at that. And then I started thinking, right, this actually subverts the cliche because these are sex slaves. They didn't choose those clothes for themselves. They didn't want to wear that stuff. And, you know, this is actually their first moment of freedom. They've never got a chance to do any of this stuff before. It's not surprising they look like lingerie models because they were kidnapped and forced into sexual slavery by Immortan Joe, probably for that reason, right? And so their first, they use their first moment of freedom about for water, to get water, which is this precious resource, and to cut off their chastity belts. And sort of as you go through the movie, they start to, put on more clothing and things like that. And you see the free women in the movie or even women like Furiosa, who's 
not really free, but sort of free, freer in a different sense. She's dressed differently. So I think that really flipped it on its head for me. Yeah, it's interesting for me that they cut off their chastity belts that aren't just like chastity belts, but they're, to me, highly stylized to look as if they're bondage gear. If anything, it's just another like visual symbolism, right, that you see throughout the film. There's very little dialogue. It's all visual symbolism. Yeah, and I I also thought that scene was kind of powerful to like ju- juxtapose against when they met the um, older women from Furiosa's like original tribe. And it was interesting because by the time later in the movie, we had gotten more of like the different personalities of uh, the original wives and like their, their kind of like, their relationships with each other and then we got to kind of see them interact with women who i'm assuming like the they they had been free their whole lives or relatively and them interacting uh with the older women was kind of like this uh, like a full circle effect you could see how some of the wives could be um could be some of those older women had they like had the freedom and opportunities to like fight for themselves as these like basically what i see is like old biker chicks <laughs> which is like one of the re- one of their like um one of the themes they were going for but you had brought up furiosa cat and i think um you had put some interesting notes about her uh character in uh preparing for this and i kind of wanted to talk about her more because as i was watching i was incredibly curious why we didn't get a background as much background of her as we got of Mad Max. Um, and I, th- I think it's interesting because to me, Furiosa is, uh, I believe has the most dialogue in the film and she's the most like interesting character, but there's also this mystery around her because you're not entirely sure of her background or how she came to be in this position or how she even came to think like, oh, I have to free the the sex slave. So what do we think of her backstory and what, how do we place her in this story to begin with? Yeah. So the, the Citadel is this very clearly regimented, like gender stereotyped society. Right. And the women, um, the women who are not the peasant women uh, who you see sort of like, begging for water and food from the citadel um all the rest of those women they are breeders they are i I guess you would call them milkmaids i'm not even sure what what they're called uh the men are all soldiers or sons who are basically also soldiers um and furiosa is the one difference here not only is she one of the war boys she's one of their commanders right and so i was so curious about how this happened uh, because the movie doesn't explain it at all basically all we've got is that we know that she was kidnapped about 19 years ago and that's how she came here and we know um we know that she's on a quest for redemption and uh that she did all of this because splendid one of the wives um had plotted this and reached out to her for help right and so I went digging and I found a Charlize Theron, who is the actress who plays Furiosa, uh, reveals in an interview that she had tried to figure this out herself and discussed it with um, Miller, the, um, the director. And he explained Furiosa's character in a way that I think makes a lot of sense. It's not on screen, but it just fills in all of those blanks for you. He saw Furiosa as a young girl who was kidnapped 
in order to be uh, one of Immortan Joe's wives. But then when it turned out that she was infertile and wasn't able to bear children, um, she was sort of abandoned and she kind of snuck in with all of these young boy war pigs, grew up alongside of them, and then, um, you know, proved herself to be a very capable soldier. And that's how she sort of rises in the ranks as the only female that we see in that kind of role. Which is fascinating because you also have to realize that uh, this whole movie only the only reason that she was able to get there, the only reason that she's in that role is because she was infertile, which is sort of to go back to our earlier conversation is sort of one of the less feminist points, or maybe it's a feminist point. I don't know. That's one of those things where you're not quite sure whether or not it's feminist, uh, kind of like Landry was saying, it's not clearly ideological. It's more realistic. Right. And I also thought it was interesting with her, when you were reading, did you find anything about like her arm? So I didn't see that, but I, I thought it was actually interesting, right? Because uh, you see her towards, I mean, this is going to be a spoiler. Hopefully everyone's watched the movie. I but, think um, everyone's watched it at this point. <laughs> <laughs> They've had a little time. Um, so Furiosa is the one who murders Immortan Joe, who's uh, basically the slave lord who's enslaved most of the characters we see on screen. And she does it by ripping off his mask. That's this metallic uh, breathing mask that's attached to his face. And she does it with her arm hooking to it and uh, then releasing her prosthetic arm goes out the window, rips off his mask and with it takes his face. Right. Which I think is just like this, this is a whole different trope in there, but it's sort of, it does tie back because you see this um, idea at the beginning of the movie that there's this dichotomy between this patriarchal citadel and then there is this matriarchy that they're trying to escape to, the green place where everything's perfect, nothing's bad. And then over the course of the film, they realize that that also doesn't actually exist. It's sort of this like utopian idea and they actually do need to rely upon a lot of the same technology a lot of the things like guzzoline their their war rig that they're using to get away in that has that's powered with mother's milk guzzoline and water just like the citadel is it's more about how those things are controlled and so i sort of saw that more as just like the difference between the technology um being used by Immortan joe versus how the technology was used by furiosa Another thing that this movie was really acclaimed for was effects and the editing that went into this. The fact that there is almost no dialogue. It is a heavily, heavily visual film. Even for a medium that is visual in nature, it takes full use of that and issues dialogue in order to tell the story via world building and an environment even the the dialogue that is there is very buried in the mix like i got way more out of watching it this time when i watched it with subtitles and like caught all these words and names for things that i never would have got when i saw it in the theater i did um, the exact same thing uh, a couple of nights ago I, I watched it with the subtitles on and i'm like oh i, I could actually hear you know what they're saying. I could actually, I actually know what their names are because sometimes yeah. I, I didn't know what, what some, uh, what some of their names were because the um, sound mixing with the, with the background music and the, uh, and the, and the action and, and, and the clanging and the hitting and it, it all kind of blurred together. 
So having nice, big, large subtitles on my screen, it was helpful. No, I was going to say, I'm definitely a uh, quippy dialogue kind of film person. Um, I tend to tune out whenever people stop talking, but this was uh, one of the few movies where, for the most part, I was just glued to the screen because of all these really cool visual effects throughout and just the fun stuff that they're doing with, uh, you know, film speed and all sorts of cool things. And, you know, if you're not watching, you don't know what happens because it's literally all just in, it's a show, not tell movie. And nothing is explained either. Things just happen and you just absorb the world as it's shown to you. I mean, uh, the uh, green place that they travel to um, as this um, safe haven, ideal place to, you know, finally rest, uh, you find out it was this, the soil, everything was destroyed by these crow-like creatures um, that you only see for a few seconds as you're driving through the night. And you find out, oh, those things that we saw are what destroyed the soil, so they couldn't plant anything. Um, and it just kind of ruined and just crashed Furiosa's uh, world for a bit. So, so at the beginning of this movie, you sort of get plunged into the patriarchy of the Citadel run by Morton Joe. And there's these very rigid gender stereotypes between, um, you know, there's the women who are the breeders or literally like the mother's milk sources. And then there's the men as the war boys. And there's this big hero worship of Morton Joe as this alpha male warlord. So you kind of get this like, split here so splendid who's the wife that we find out actually thought up and engineered this whole escape she had both written on the walls of the vault where the wives were locked up as sex slaves who killed the world and she says it to uh nox who's the war boy who ends up allying himself with them throughout the course of the movie as she's throwing him off the war rig so there's this idea that it's this is all the fault of the men. And then to contrast with that, there's this imagined matriarchy of this perfect green place where there's this stereotype of women who are these sort of peaceful, fertile mother goddess types. And then we find out that that's not true. First off, the green place doesn't actually exist. It hasn't existed for, you know, who knows how long it's it's all dead now. And these these stereotypes themselves don't exist. Uh, the war rig that they're escaping on, it runs on guzzoline, mother's milk, and they use bullets just the same as the war boys do. They realize that they have to actually turn around and go back to the Citadel and just manage it better to build this better world. They can't actually just go to this imagined better world. And there's just this great scene here, too, where the dag who's one of the wives, says to the seed keeper, who's one of the women from Furiosa's tribe, uh, the Vuvalini of many mothers, which itself is sort of this matriarchal trope, right? But she's talking to her, and the, the, the seed keeper is the woman, older woman. She's got a bag full of seedlings and seeds that she's keeping for uh, whenever she can eventually, they can eventually plant again. And she's telling the dag about her kill count and how great of a shot she is. And the dag looks at her and says, somehow I thought you girls were all above that because she really saw it as the women were different from the men. And in fact, what we find out is that the women and the men, they're all just people, right? And so I think that was just this really interesting shift in the movie. And that's sort of also when we turn around and go back to the Citadel and all of that. And it just... It, there's this theme of female strength throughout the movie, right? So Furiosa, 
the the Vuvulini of Money Mothers, they're not fighting on brute strength. They don't have the same brute strength as some of the male warriors or even Max, but they're just as capable, right? Like Furiosa is actually a better shot than Max or Splendid. She's using her heavily pregnant body as the human shield so that they can get away. Uh, we see uh, just so many depictions of this where it's like, actually, they have the same kinds of strength. It's just different. And it's and so I thought that was really interesting. Charlize Theron, who's again, the Furiosa actress, she said, you know, she talked about one of her frustrations when she was doing interviews about the movie was that she kept hearing from people oh, what strong women. And she said, no, we're actually just women. We just had a filmmaker who understood that the truth is that women are powerful enough and that we don't want to be made supernaturally strong and capable of doing things we're not capable of doing. And that's sort of the theme. Like everyone here is just a human. It's just they're human acting within the confines of the world that they've been forced into. To touch upon something Kat mentioned about the green place and stereotypes, it's funny how um, interesting how that was tied into the, it wasn't talked about brief. It, it was mentioned briefly about Hulk. And basically when Max is like, unless you go back and, you know, fix what's wrong, you'll go mad. And the thing mm-hmm. about Mad Max is that he himself is damaged beyond belief. We see a lot of flashbacks of, um, of things that traumatized him through the movie from the very beginning of the movie. And yet those weren't in any of the prior movies. So we're basically seeing, we know Max, how he operates. He just drifts from place to place, adventure to adventure. Some that we, that we've never seen. And the, the trauma of things that, you know, we never seen before still haunt him. And Towards the end, he mentions, he, I guess he uh, he ties it back together with uh, a prior conversation with the Furiosa about finding redemption. Mm-hmm. So, and basically that's, that's basically when they both decide, well, a- after another brief moment of, of a flashback trauma he has with this little girl that, that constantly keeps um, flashing into his mind, that's when he basically, uh, I don't, I don't know if it's, I, I guess it's guilt because, uh, because apparently he failed to save someone before a group of people or family or whoever and chose this moment as his chance to redeem himself, but also to help Furiosa and find her redemption, which is what she was looking for. Cause who knows what she's done over the many years working for Joe as a slave, basically, but still doing things against her will constantly that she needs to find uh, redemption for herself. Right. I thought the redemption point was really interesting because when she first says uh, to Max, um, that she's looking for redemption. I just watching the film, it was like, why, what does she need redemption for? And then you, it sort of fills in, uh, especially when you find out that she was kidnapped from the Vuvulini, uh, 19 years ago or so, probably more, um, that her mother was, uh, also kidnapped and died three years into it. And that, you know, and then you start thinking about the fact that she's, she's a war boy. She's very much part of uh she's part of this whole structure of enslavement of murder of kidnapping all these awful things and it's something that she's had to do to survive and so that that's what she's getting redemption for and so i just i found that fascinating that even though it's all this trauma and it's all the stuff that she never wanted to do that she probably wouldn't have done in other circumstances in a different world 
she still feels that need for redemption and she gets it through helping these other women who are probably also equally kidnapped and try and were more forced into sex slavery that she was at first and didn't end up working out. I mean, it was, it was so poignant, particularly once I started to reflect on it more. At some point, I'm pretty sure uh, Max says, doesn't he say like hope is a mistake? It's one of his very few lines, obviously, as we've been saying. And I think that whole discussion about redemption and how short it was actually made it more poignant, if that makes sense. Because because of the so few words in throughout then the dialogue throughout the movie, I felt like every dialogue or conversation that was included was even that much more powerful and that much more important for you to pay attention to. I, I believe at one point he did say hope is a mistake. And that's kind of why... I guess that's just kind of his outlook on life because he tried to escape at least once that we saw um, and kind of kind of got a glimmer of like the light at the end of the tunnel and then never actually made it out and never escaped. Um, but his his whole character is very interesting to me. So I, I'm thinking we'll probably talk more about him, too. Yeah, I mean, I think that that hope is a mistake thing. It's actually interesting that he says that because, you know, and the very first I maybe it's not the very first one is the very first lines of the movie is him also talking about how uh it's all he lives for survival and he can't be tied to any other people and stuff like that and then he said he sort of begrudgingly gets tied to uh the war reg and furiosa and the wives uh because you know they're the only way that he can get off uh this metal mask on his face get off these chains all of that and then Throughout their sort of adventure, if you can call it that, their escape, their fight, whatever you want to call it, I think he actually does start to see more hope. And I think that the central message there is that that hope is necessary for their survival. Without that hope, they would have stopped it so many times. Like there has to be some hope that there is a possibility to survive to get past that. And that's sort of this redemption arc that you see for both Max and honestly, even uh, Nuz, the uh, the war boy who ends up getting tied up with them. They, they both kind of learn about this hope and they get that hope from their interactions with this revolutionary war party or whatever you want to call them. They also learn to sort of uh, accept different parts of themselves, ones that are more about uh, healing or helping others and aren't simply about pursuing war. Like originally Nux's desires are all about riding into Valhalla uh, with glory, uh, you know, shiny and chrome and, and being witnessed. And uh, I caught this for the first time. It's Max from the very beginning you see him like he's peeing outside in the first shots like you see him from behind using the restroom and then the lizard crawls up behind him and he stomps it with his boot and eats it and then is immediately being chased in what is literally in the like texts of the the mad max universe is called a hunt where a bunch of people are hunting down another vehicle and they're trying to to capture him and then he is put and used like livestock he is he becomes a blood bag and they harvest him and they almost like how they you know use women as a resource and they milk them and they treat them like cows literally they do the same thing for mad max with his blood and they put that mask on him and they strap him to the front of the car and they put the chain around his neck and he's not only filling nux with blood there's that 
awesome, very creative, sort of confusing fight scene when they've just gone through the storm where he's still chained up to Nux and it's like he's on a leash. And so he's trying to get Furiosa and uh, Nux is trying to help him because they know they need to keep him alive and everything. You have Max... And when he realizes that he has to trust these women and what their goal is, they finally give him the chisel so that he can remove his mask. And when he finally breaks the back piece of it, there is this like beat in the music of when his this like muzzle comes off of him. And he suddenly that I think creates a very big turning point in the movie where he suddenly starts speaking to them a lot more like i think up until that point he maybe says like three words to them he just says like yeah he says water and move or her or something it's still sparse dialogue but he he does start actually speaking to them and offering you know insights like as nihilistic as they are with you know hope is a mistake etc it is that abandonment of his bestial nature that is the sort of starting point of his redemption. Well, I think you're hitting on something that I thought was just really fascinating about the film too. It's a sort of, this film is all about duality and different sides of the same thing. And I think one of the things that was really interesting to me is how they depict basically all of the main characters that we see are using the symbols of their oppression. They reclaim them at some point in the film. And so in Max's case, at the beginning of the movie, he's a blood bag, right? And so like his big thing at the beginning, he's escaping from being a blood bag. And then his big redemption thing is when he uses the fact that he's a universal donor, which is something that was literally tattooed on his back against his will to save Furiosa. You see Furiosa, who is getting redemption from the fact that she was a rejected sex slave who then grows up as a war boy and through that is able to get to freedom. She, her redemption is then helping these sex slaves escape using the tools of being that you see Nux who goes into the movie at the beginning of the movie is bought into this Valhalla and is going to essentially uh, suicide bomb in the protection of Immortan Joe. He chooses to do it after he's kind of moved past this idea of Valhalla in order to save these people this mission that he's sort of chosen for himself you see blended who uses immortan joe's baby who's really her rapist baby that she's carrying in order to help promote this revolution that she's spearheaded she's the brains behind in order to help that escape happen it's just throughout the movie you see this sort of like over and over and over again i mean even at the end of the movie you see the the women who you saw at the beginning who were being milked on these milking machines they break free of it and they open the water for the the peasants who are underneath, which I think is also sort of this symbolic duality that you see. That was, I think, one of the like most interesting, deepest moments for me. Like all of these things, they have, you, I guess you could say like awful uses, awful purposes, etc. And then they also have this very like, when the characters are able to own that for themselves, when they're able to make those decisions on their own, for their own reasons, it's a very redemptive and hopeful theme as well, even though it's the same thing we're looking at. If there's one thing I'd like to mention about Splendid uh, very briefly is, uh, is even though she was the brains of, of the operation, uh, to actually do it, it took a lot of 
activity, a lot of physical violence, basically. And yet mm-hmm. she's a bit of a pacifist because there are a couple scenes where Furiosa was about to stab Nux in the throat with her like blade that she had at that um, gear stick. And then uh, Splendid was like, no, don't kill him. He's just a, a pup, a kid. So she saved his life there. There was another moment where during one of the uh, attack sequences, where they're all being attacked, where she asked, where Furiosa asked her to reload her weapon for her. And she couldn't do it. It's as if she didn't want to. It's as if it was against her core belief to harm anybody, even if indirectly, right? Which is, you know, and at that point, the uh, other bride was the one who uh, rearmed her shotgun. So I find that very interesting. And she's not she's not afraid of violence. I think that's what's clear, too. She chooses not to engage in it. But she she puts her body out there. She's also, when Max is there, when he first comes up with the gun and they don't know that it doesn't work, she's the one who goes forward towards him. She gets shot in the leg a little bit later and she sort of like sucks it up. So that's actually a really interesting point, too. It's not that she's frightened of violence. She believes in a world without it. We have talked a lot about the ways in which we think that the feminism is portrayed, I think, in a way that sort of subverts tropes and is rather hopeful. And we keep going back to that sort of the turning of hope itself. But I think there is a sad irony in the movie in the fact that they have to return back from where they came obviously that that turn uh, when they realize that the green place this matriarchal utopian ideal that they've been striving for that we've been hoping to get to the entire time is a, a lost cause it does not exist and then you have to return from where you came and hopefully try to make it better it's very much a sort of monomythic return to home uh, after defeating trials, etc. scenario in that way, albeit much more streamlined. There's also the idea that the tools that you have, even if you're trying to subvert them, can they actually be used to correct the system that has created the problems that you've encountered? Will the violence that you have enacted and and been a part of and had to use to survive like Furiosa has, will that be enough to allow them to have the society that they want without Immortanjo be reborn? And you don't see that nearly as clearly when they get back. Like one of the main problems with the Citadel was Immorton Joe's like authoritarianism, but it was also the fact that he centrally controlled all the resources, you know, bullets from Bullet Farm, gas from Gas Town, the Citadel's water supply. It, these are not separate outposts that are trading with each other. He holds like a grip on them and with this like gang of thugs of the people eater and and everyone, he just sort of pools these resources and a small group of people um, just sort of dips into the coffers and uses them whenever they wish. So there's no trade. The only other institution that we get from this movie is this like hinted at cult of V8 and this like pseudo church or or at least set of religious beliefs that is heavily influenced by like Norse myths of Valhalla and this idea of like a, a warrior heaven 
But we don't get other institutions. There is no social structure tying these people together because they are fighting for their basic survival and and their base needs. I wonder if Furiosa is aware in the sad irony that by returning back and giving away all the water, are they going to be able to fix anything or are they just going to be able to make that survival slightly easier? Yeah, I don't know. That's actually, that was one of the things I was wondering because the movie doesn't really conclude. We see them going up. We don't even know like what's going to happen once they go up. You know, there's all of those war boys like, yes, granted, these are still like more children than the children that we see fighting the phone. The war boys we see fighting are probably in their teens and early 20s for the most part. The war boys that they left at home are the child soldiers, right? They're like seven, nine in that age range. So they're maybe a little bit more malleable, but we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if Furiosa even will be in control. And then once she is, as Landry, as you point out, you still have the exact same problems with centrally controlled resources. At the beginning, we see Immortan Joe release the water kind of as this populist way of controlling the people below, that he's willing to give them this little bit of water, but in like the worst possible resource management way. They're just wasting it, essentially. But then what's the first thing that they do upon returning to the Citadel? They're wasting the water in the exact same way. The central cause of the fact they were even able to get back to the Citadel was you see the fallacy of this control and command economy where essentially everyone's a soldier they sent all the soldiers out and all they had to do was trap them out and they were able to take control of the city but then what right so i you get this like central idea of hope i think it's one of the themes of the movie but we don't know what's going to happen the only thing we get is that there's this hint because the end of the movie ends on this sort of like honestly a very opaque quote from the first history man that's who it's attributed to and you know that implies there's a future if there's a first history man then presumably there's a second history man and there's someone writing the history but we know it's a man is that man max you know what happens we don't know Well, it's interesting that you say that, Kat, because I was I was looking up some of this. And this also clarifies, I think, a little bit about Furiosa's backstory as well, is I did not know that there is a comic book series that fills in some of the uh, backstory to this portion of the Mad Max universe. And it was eventually released in a like a trade paperback. Um, so it, it actually explains that the... The history men are, I believe, um, many of them, or at least how they're portrayed, are former war boys or or people that lived to see the like Fury Road uh, war, as they call it, end and Furiosa return. And much akin to Max, they literally will tattoo words onto their bodies in order to preserve and tell the stories of what occurred because people thought that the forgetting of what happened and those involved was what allowed them to slide into the society that they created with a Morton Joe in the first place. And that by tattooing the words onto their bodies, very similar to how Max has universal donor on his, that it was their way of preserving what had gone on uh, for future generations. 
in terms of like developing how the war boys like came to be and that kind of stuff, there is definitely a lot to be desired or a lot that was left unsaid in the movie. So like, to me, that's what struck out is like when they're chrome spraying their mouths, when it that seemed to be like an action they were about to do before they were going to commit suicide or like die for the cause or like dying in combat. It was a little confusing, like other than that, just being like some kind of like, just graphic action film type move. It was confusing, like to someone who hadn't seen the previous movies and hadn't done a lot of background research before watching that, like they could have said a lot more about this, like pseudo cult of the V8 pseudo religion thing before because then i was like well are they talking about like reincarnation landry mentioned this earlier but when they were injecting themselves with mad max's blood and then i was like is this some kind of like weird cult thing so like i got that vibe but it wasn't clearly explained in the movie and like once i did some research i saw that there was like background knowledge on it but um it was just it's just so very odd (laughs) yeah it's one of those things where it's very mad max like in that movie where Things happen so fast and there just really is no time to um, fully develop the world that you're seeing. You're basically watching it in real time because it's basically several long car chases and <laughs> and, and it's hard to absorb all of these things. And, I'm, I'm, and I want to go back to a point I made earlier about the green place and how these weird crow-like people, these crow-like things, you only see them at night briefly as they're driving through and they're the ones who destroy you know, you find out that they destroy Furiosa's homeland. That's a pretty big deal, I, I would say, but you see them briefly. And and the war boys, they're just there. And they have this weird thing about wanting to be witnessed. You know, witness me, witness me. It's like, it's a, I mean, it's a very adolescent teenage boy thing to say, you know, look at me. It's very true. I hadn't thought about it that way. Like there's, I mean, obviously there's uh, the idea that like, like martyrdom, like you have to be witnessed in order to, if you're dying for your cause in order for it to count. But it also is a very stereotypical masculine thing to be like, check this out. I'm going to jump off the roof and land on some stupid thing. And if I did it by myself, I would be dumb. But if I do it in front of my friends, it'll be either hilarious or awesome. (laughs) So yeah, I hadn't thought about that before. That's very true. And there's always that one dude who's, who's always unimpressed. Like even the the, the um, yeah. first kid who who died, like, that was mediocre. There's always that one dude who's unimpressed. So it's it's the very uh, stereotypical boys male behavior. It's just hilarious to me. We could glorify the dumbest thing and make it seem hugely important, but when you step back and look at it, it's silly. <laughs> Well, it's it's interesting to me that you talk about things getting glorified that are are really silly, you know, when you look at them in hindsight or something. But I never caught so much of the language and the world that they built. I mean, very much is talking about what gets preserved in the like nuclear fallout that this that sets up the world of Immortan Joe and the Citadel and this post-apocalyptic wasteland. You have water that gets called aquacola, which makes me think that maybe like the only thing that survived was not anything about what water was, but just like cans of it or something. They talk about McFeasting at one point as if it's like this like heavenly thing. And I'm and I didn't catch it until this time. And I was like, wait, McFeasting? Are they using like the McDonald's prefix to to talk about that? And it was just so 
so funny to me to catch all of those things in there where they're obviously trying to very subtly build in critiques of uh, mostly like consumerist or what manifest destiny they use manifest destiny to mean like basically like you die for this cause of immortal joe the very fact that his title is immortal joe they don't say immortal at any point they usually say immorta like the there's no Mm -hmm. l at the end and i see that as like he's seen he's the great leader because he's the one who hasn't died (laughs) and now for the time in the show where we get to share all of the other things that we've been enjoying with our time at home this is locked in Kat, Lester, what else have you been enjoying since you have been locked in at home? Movies, TV, music, anything? So this is nothing new for me, but since March, last March, almost a year ago at this point, I have watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'm now on my third way through. Um, so You're a Buffy buff. I'm a Buffy buff. I love Buffy. I love Buffy. It sort of it even kind of ties to uh, Mad Max Fury Road, right? It's also, it's sort of, turning the tropes on its head with Buffy is the like blonde teenage cheerleader who dies in all of the horror movies. And in this, the horror serial, she's the slayer. She's the only one who can save them from all of it. Lester, what about you? You've been enjoying any movies or TV shows, games in particular, anything? I buy a lot of movies. I'm a big physical media guy. So I, and I'm a big um, cult movie guy, so I buy a lot of things. I watch a lot of stuff, and it's just we live in a beautiful age where so many of these old movies are getting restored and put out in these premium formats, um, and even some of the old classic ones. Uh, last week, I got a the 4K of, of uh, the uh, Kirk Douglas Spartacus. It's gorgeous. Besides that, TV wise, I'm still beaming over over, over the series finale of um, Ultraman Z. And they aired it on, on YouTube simultaneously, so you could watch it every Friday night. And it's subtitled, oh, cool. so I was able to actually watch it. And it's just glorious, heroic superhero stuff. And it made me buy some more merchandise, which I, I got to do what I got to do. And so it's just, you know, I'm just in, enjoying stuff here. I don't, I have a PlayStation 5 that I barely touch because I'm just not <laughs> that into games like I used to be because I just don't have the time. Uh, but yeah. it's a nice system. <laughs> For me, I have uh, just started the it's a new Netflix show called Faint and then it's the Winx saga. So it's like it's kind of a rip rip off on like Harry Potter. Like there's a bunch of people, students that go to this like magical school and uh, they're like different types of fairies, um, even though they have wizard powers. But you know what? We're not going to we're not going to get into the details of that. It's so far. It's it's good. It was like the number one show on Netflix for like a few weeks in a row. So I was like, yeah, why not? I just started reading another book. Oh, gosh, I'm going to. Oh, it's called The Secrets We Kept. Um, So I'm like a really big World War II historical fiction book junkie. Um, I really like books from that are written in that time period. And this one is about it's actually it's more like Cold War ish. But this one's about the women who were typewriters at the um, in the first CIA office and the kind of information they were uh, privy to. Um, So hence the the secrets we kept title. 
I have just started watching a show that I have have heard a lot about but hadn't actually watched on my own, Dairy Girls, which is on Netflix, which is a very funny comedy series. Uh, there are two seasons of on Netflix right now that takes place during the 90s during the Troubles. And so it is a group of mostly teenage girls uh, at, at their Catholic school. And just kind of living their lives and being normal teenagers at this very, very tumultuous time. And it, but it's a very quick, kind of bleak comedy. So you've got them in the background living through, you know, bomb threats and bridge closings and checkpoints when they're going, you know, on the bus to school, but they're also trying to navigate their entirely normal teenage lives. It is very, very funny. If you like Bridgerton, Penelope from Bridgerton is in this show, um, but she plays a very, very different character. So I think you'll get a kick out of it. Um, and there's only like 12 episodes and they're a half hour long. I highly recommend Dairy Girls. Thanks for listening. If you want to know the movies we talk about before the episode comes out so you can watch along with us, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you get them as soon as they come out. We look forward to unraveling your favorite TV show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.